Welcome to the Giant Step Podcast with your host, Maurice Bernstein, as we take you on a journey into music and culture from the world of Giant Step. Hello and welcome to the Giant Step podcast, your journey into music and culture. I'm your host, Morris Bernstein. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Giant Step. Today's uh, podcast is with um, Ivan Wicksteed. Uh, Ivan is the Chief Growth and Revenue Officer at Aspiration Bank. And uh, we talk about um, the future of banking, uh, fintech, uh, the environment, and Bitcoin as well. Um, the recording was originally done as part of Giant Steps Instagram Live on April the 9th, 2021. So please excuse any sort of noise issues or audio problems because the content, as usual, is well worth listening to. And as always, if you want to find out more about Giant Step, visit our website at giantstep.net and follow us on Instagram at, at giantstep. Uh, and please send us any feedback or thoughts on our shows. So now, please enjoy my conversation with Ivan Wicksteed. Ivan, welcome. For those that don't know, uh, this is Ivan Wicksteed. Ivan is the Chief Growth and Revenue Officer at Aspiration Bank, which sounds like a very fancy title. Uh, we'll get into what that actually means in a bit. We've been, you know, working with each other over the years on many different things, which we'll get into as well. Um, but I think, you know, your, your story, I think, is quite inspirational. Um, so I, I always like, I, I always like <laughs> to start at the beginning so people can understand how, you know, a lad from Warrington, um, for those who know where Warrington is, um, managed to rise to the heights of the CMO of uh, Fortune 500 companies. So, um, Let's let's start at the beginning, Ivan. When oh Jesus, <laughs> <laughs> Dis- lying, theft, deception. Uh... <laughs> that sounds like my story. No, no, I want to hear your story. <laughs> um, I, 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 I guess I. I mean, I, 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 it's easy to what's the Steve Jobs quote? You know, sort of like join the dots. Uh, backwards but it's less easy to join them forward I'd like to say that I set out with a sort of a, a you know career uh, plan and uh, just sort of ch- checked off the boxes but nothing could be further from the truth I mean I definitely that's not the way it went for me in fact I studied marketing at university briefly and hated it and dropped out you know I thought it was the most boring subject in the world uh, I still do actually to be honest with you <laughs> um, from an academic I, from an academic perspective I love doing it I love being right. a CMO I love, I love doing marketing but um, I think as an academic subject it's a little dry I think it's a I think it's a practical um you know hands dis- on discipline you know what i mean it's like, like dancing yeah. you know what i mean yeah. you got to do yeah. it <laughs> yeah yeah you can do all the theory you can learn all the theory but it's all about how you execute and practice i think so i think so yeah that's the fun part of it so um 
yeah, um, kind of, I guess looking back on it, my career was sort of concentric circles of just, you know, I was in create, it was in, you know, within the agency side and sort of more career, on the more creative and then that but, kind of led to the client side. But, yeah, but before that, I mean, you grew up in in the north, the north of England, fairly near to me. Actually, we did not know each other. Uh, you're from Warrington, right? Yeah, right. And for those that don't know, Warrington is what they call a new town. So it was some, it was like um, a town that was pretty much built um, what like uh, like less than a hundred years ago. It's sort of like urban planning you know, people leaving the inner cities and coming more to the suburbs. And it's, it's located in between Liverpool and Manchester. It's a shithole, uh, basically, yeah. is what no, you're it, trying to say. Right. Well, it, it's kind of a, a place <laughs> that has really no history and no identity. <laughs> and no, no, it, it's true. I mean, you know, whereas Liverpool, but but it was a, it was a way of people to escape from the, the mundane in a city because the, the, yeah. the, the cities like Manchester and Liverpool were ho- these industrial, right. you know, decaying cities. Yeah. 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 Well, probably the simplest way of putting it is that I left there running when I was 18 and I've never been back. <laughs> Actually, there's some say, very famous no people. There's some very famous people from Warrington. Um, yeah. Uh, the actor. Stone, Stone Roses lead yeah. singer. Mm-hmm. Ian, yeah, Ian Brown is from at, at Warrington, but also um, uh, his name will come to be. He's a famous English actor, curly black hair. Um, it, uh, it'll come to me, but, but go on. Yeah, right. Um, anyway, um, I, 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 you know, I don't want to bore people with my 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 personal life history, but um, yeah, but you know, just sort of concentric circles, I guess, of of finding. Um, following my nose in terms of like what I've, I've always done what I found interesting to do, you know, like I've never, um, I've never actually, other than the first job that I ever had, which was, um, I only really took that job because I fancied the girl that was, um, that was in the, in the, in the interview process and we ended up dating for a few years, but it wasn't suited to it. That was a, like a market research job. Other than that one, which I took for the wrong reasons when I was, you know, 21 years old, I've always done things that I just enjoyed doing, you know, and it's kind of one thing's led to the, led to the other, you know? So, um, like I said, sort of broadening sort of concentric circles, you know, sort of strategy led to sort of more creative, led to agency, led to client, and then ultimately, you know, been a CMO for, but, for a while now. But this was, this was in London. So you, um, you, you, you left, um, you left Warrington running. You went to yeah. university. Where, yeah. where did you go to university? Lancaster. You went. So you went up north. You went further yeah. up north. Um, yeah. And then when you finished that, you then started working. And yeah. Um, you said the first job you only did it because you fancied the person who you were in, was interviewing you. What was that? What What was that job? It was research. It was like a, a market research firm called Research International. And um, yeah, it was basically what happened. So I did, I ended up doing it for a few years. It was, it was, it was intellectually interesting, but like the, 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 the folks around me weren't really of my type, you know, they weren't particularly, um, you know, sort of people I'd, I'd hang out with. I, I didn't really know anyone. In, this was the 1990s in London and advertising was still kind of like a 
sort of a glamour, glamour industry, I guess. There was a lot of money going around, the parties were good. And then I, I, I just started running into people in the advertising industry and they just, um, they threw much better parties than market researchers did. And <laughs> <laughs> That's very surprising. <laughs> um, so I started hanging out with the advertising people and, uh, and, and kind of got into it that way, you know, and then I was on the agency side for a while in London. And which were some of the agencies that you worked with in London, worked for in London? Um, my first one was Amirati Puris Lintas, which is a, sort of a New York merged with a, you know, uh, a London agency. And then I was with, um, I was at DDB, BMP, mm-hmm. which is like the, the home of, the home of planning, basically, which is what I was doing. I was a strategist, basically. So the home of, home of, home of planning, really. Did that for a little while. And then I, um, and then jumped ship to um again it was kind of random coincidental there's a guy that was trying to hire me in london and he moved to la and he joined a agency in la called tbwa shy day mm-hmm. run by lee clow so he came over there and he called me up one day and he was like hey you know i've got this job why don't you come out so um got on a plane and went to la and um that was 20 years ago. And um, it was it your first time in the States when you came to LA? No, I'd been to New York before, but I hadn't been to LA before. And um, yeah, I'd never been to LA and I did the classic sort of jet lag um, thing, you know, woke up at three o'clock in the morning, staring at the you know ceiling fan. And I got in my rental car. I remember I drove up from, I was at Santa Monica, I drove up, all the way up to the up to the hills and then all the way down Santa Monica Boulevard down to Malibu. And as I was coming down, it was probably seven o'clock in the morning, there was like a pod of dolphins going by. So I'm like a poor kid from the north of England, you know what I mean? Never seen any dolphins in my life right. before, yeah. you know, certainly never seen it, you know, mm-hmm. in the Pacific Ocean at seven o'clock right. in the morning. So I put stopped the car, took off my clothes and jumped in the water and went swimming about, you know. Then went back to the hotel and um, I still had a couple of hours to kill. It was probably nine o'clock in the morning. I felt, remember phoned my mate Michelle in London, said, that's it. I'm, I'm right. staying out here. This is yeah. it. Los Angeles is my life. You know, she's like, oh, congratulations. You got the job. I was like, well, I haven't interviewed yet, actually, technically. But, you know, <laughs> I, uh, I already decided I'm moving here. So, um, you know, any city where you can swim with dolphins before breakfast has got to yeah, be, amazing. Uh, you know. So, um, yeah, L.A. and then since L.A., then I've basically been di- flitting back and forth between the coasts, you know, L.A. For, for a few years and New York. Uh, I went up to Massachusetts a little bit to work at Converse. So I was with Nike for a bit and came back here to New York again to be the CMO of um, Colhan and then went to San Francisco to be the CMO of Old Navy and then you know, um, stuck around on the West Coast for a little bit and then back in New York now. And and then you were at Coca-Cola for a, for a little bit as well? Mm-hmm. Were, were you in Atlanta for that? I was not, no. I mean, yes, I was. I was, I, 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 I never lived in Atlanta. I lived in New York. I lived in the Four Seasons, basically, in Atlanta for five right. years. You know, I used to have my used to have my uh, dry cleaning and mail and stuff sent there. Um, so, I, but I never actually got an apartment in, um, in Atlanta, I never kind of went that went that far. You know, I I, I just played between them. That was a, that was a that was a crazy job, though. I mean, I was just like flying around the world all the time. You know, sort of just lapping the world. I I when I look back, I did it for five years, and when I look back at that, it just is just one oh, continuous what, stream of jet lag. What were you doing? 
Basically, sort of working with the agencies globally, you know, for Coca-Cola. So working with all of the different you know, creative agencies, uh, advertising agencies to try and, you know, help them develop their, their, their work, basically, for Coca-Cola. It was a it was pretty amazing um, time, you know, to be to be able to have that level of sort of exposure to the best creative talent in the world you know dan wyden and mm -hmm. you know alex boguski and you know just these amazing creative minds all kind of working on the working on the business um coca-cola is definitely a, a door opener um, yeah it wasn't really wasn't really my cup of tea to be honest with you i wasn't really very well suited to coca-cola right you know culturally speaking it wasn't really didn't really find my footing there particularly you know i've been been much happier since then right. <laughs> in other places you know but uh it was it was amazing exposure for sure and we and we first started working together when you were at cole Hahn. you were the cmo of cole Hahn, the the shoe company which yeah. is a a classic american shoe well it was uh, until we got hold of it yeah. yeah right but you you really came in and you, you, you your goal was to really sort of flip the script on um on the perception, the positioning, and and the people who were wearing them as well, like trying to get yeah. a whole new um, generation uh, to wear them. Um, and one of my one of my first memories of, of you as a CMO, which I found to be quite unique from my experience, was instead of you hiring one agency for the campaign, you kind of hired a bunch of agencies together. And we all worked together for the brand, which was something I'd never done before, which was quite interesting. And you kind of, you didn't pit us against each other, but you kind of, you created this sort of tension to make sure that we all came up with the best work for you. It, it yeah. was kind of an interesting, is that, is yeah. that your philosophy of, of how to work with it? I mean, uh, um, yeah, I mean, it's def it was definitely something that, I did a lot of when I was at Coke. Yeah. Um, but I just, I think at that time, you know, like that was, that was around the time where it was kind of like right at the beginning of that fragmentation of the agency world that was just starting to happen, you know, for, for, for a few decades before preceding that, you know, really up until the two thousands, it was pretty normal to have like a agency of record, you know, and that agency AORs, you know, and they would do everything, you know, for yeah. you, you know, they'd do the PR, like they'd do nuts. the advertising, yeah. Yeah. earned, yeah. paid, owned. Um, and some yeah, of it they do well, and some of them they, they did, would yeah. do awfully. Yeah. They, they'd like basically own the brand for you, you know, and like just take care of it. It was a one, it was a one, one stop shop, you know, one click solution kind of thing. And that's how it, that's how it was for quite a long time. And then, you know, in the, in the 2000s, that all started to fall apart. And now you, you know, it's, it's just not, not, it's not practical, right? You're not going to have someone whose knows music and culture is unlikely to be the same person or the yeah. same agency that yeah. knows how to do, do acquisition marketing the most effectively. Yeah. So, you know, it's just, it's the world we live in. And, and, and you basically, uh, in your way of changing the perception of the Colham brand, you created a basically a New York takeover uh, over a period of time where we just just crazy things started we happening. We threw a lot of parties. Well, it was more than that. I mean, there were your storefront takeovers. I mean, yeah. like, you know, we we worked on an event for you guys where um, we had this young guy called Diplo DJ and we had Santi Gold um, yeah. perform. 
and um, uh, we did it at the Poisson Rouge. And I think I remember telling the venue that we would have 200 people there for like a, an hour or something. And we ended up having like 3000 people there all night. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Yeah. That was a, that was, um, that was a pretty, you know, I, I, of all of the CMO gigs that I've, or the marketing gigs that I've been involved with, that was the one I had probably had more fun with that one than, than, than any other, because it was such a, it was such a turnaround, you know, it was such a, you know, Cole Hahn was this sort of fusty old, you know, sort of, it's your granddad's shoe, basically, yeah. you know, it was comfort shoe. And, um, but they had this, you know, it'd been bought by Nike, you know, years prior and they had this, you know, really interesting technology. You know, this was before, I mean, now it's like, you know, everyone's doing it now, but they were the first company to really put that whole, like to, to take running shoe technology and, and, and put, put it into a brown shoe, you know, like no one had done that before. And like, so that was cool um like disruptive you know an interesting idea so like it, it let it led itself to that idea of like let's make this the shoe that you can go to work in but you can also go out after work and so like that whole new york you know like never i think never go home was the was the was the um creative campaign that we ran with and it was about encouraging basically people to you know go out and stay out you know in yeah. their shoes and it was um, like up all night right yeah yeah a little bit yeah and that's what the all of the you know the ultraviolet you know those projections and everything were on the storefronts but yeah it was it was it was incredibly successful that that shoe that that one shoe the lunar grand just like just blew up i remember yeah. we had a we had a launch party for you might have been there actually we had a launch mm -hmm. party at the store mm -hmm. in soho we had the mm -hmm. flagship store in soho mm -hmm. and um I was living nearby. I think I was living in Tribeca, and we had this, you know, essentially a PR launch for it in that in that store. And um, I was cycling by the next morning on my way to the office, and there were these Japanese kids standing outside the store. <laughs> it was like nine o'clock in the morning. I thought they were sizing up the store or something, so I stopped and asked them what what they were, what they were up to, and uh, they had come into town to get that that was the only place you could get that shoe at that time and they'd come into town because they'd heard about they'd read about it in sneak i think we were on sneaker freaker and they'd come in to to get the, you know to get the uh, to get the shoe so um there was a line basically i don't think there'd ever been a line outside that store before so there was a line of these sneaker heads that were coming in to this brown shoe company to get in line to buy this this shoe and that was the beginning i think of that whole um athleisure sort of movement there of, mm -hmm. you know that that the, then so many other brands then jumped on but no one else was doing it at that time so um I, I i credit mark parker at nike actually with coming up with the idea he's the one who actually glued the sole of a nike free running shoe to a leather upper i mean it was his it was his idea um so but um yeah it was a, a disruptive idea right mm -hmm. before it was something new yeah, and then after that, you you went out to Old Navy, which um, is it, it, obviously a, a global, you know, uh, retail powerhouse. is part of Gap, um, but a very different type of fashion that you um, that you, you sort of work with in the past. A different, very different type of product, um, and and you know, and 
you know, I, I remember like the the advertising and the marketing was very tongue in cheek, very funny, um, you know, just very it had a certain you put a certain wit to the brand. Um, yeah. Yeah, I don't. Um, yeah. I mean, um, <laughs> the uh, the advertising that was happening before. Uh, I, I I got there in like the end of 2012, I think it was. Um, was well, let me put it this way: they they were using a lot of music. Actually, they, they actually at one point is kind of interesting to you, probably. They were us, Old Navy had I think aspirations of being a um, record that's right, company. That's right. Yeah, you right? and they wanted that, to yeah. they wanted to. So they were using a lot of musicians in their advertising and putting. Um, bands in there but for some reason which i still don't know i can't i don't know why but they were they were using like like literally boys to men were in the commercial uh, that they made this was like 2012 right boys so to the, men boys like... to men are, they're already old men <laughs> very old, old men old men to very old men yeah so i don't know why they were using you know musicians from the 1990s and 1980s but i don't know but um yeah so i think we just i think we just um brought it up to brought it up to date a little bit and uh you know we had um amy polo and you know just put some more more you know just put some funny people in the ads basically yeah and, and we started doing the music for you i'll never forget the the call i got from you i was in miami at art basel and you said i've just been traveling around the world to all the old navy um you know different different retail stores to visit them and if I walk into one more and hear that music, I'm going to kill myself. So I need you. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm begging right. you, please help me. You know, that's I'm, right. I'm like, okay. Right. Oh my god, it was yeah, it was painful. I'm, I'm like like you. I'm like very sensitive to and attuned to music if it's playing in the background. If I walk into a restaurant yeah. or a store, like if I'm in a you know, I like I just immediately start tuning into it. So yeah. like um. It's it's offensive to me, you know, when I uh, yes, when if I'm supposedly you know trying to direct the brand, but I'm hearing you know god awful music. Yeah. Um, uh, so yeah, well, thanks for thanks for helping yeah. out with that. It definitely got better. Yeah, we're still doing it. Uh, I know you are. With it. Yeah. Um, so um, yeah, do, do you want to talk about Oscar at all? Um, before we get into aspiration, because there's like so much I want to like get into with the, this sort of. Yeah, we can jump online. straight. Yeah. We, yeah, we can jump straight to aspiration. I mean, yeah, cool. yeah that's fine. So, um, you know, I, I think the first thing before we talk about aspiration, can you give a definition of fintech for for the audience? Um, so they can because your you know aspiration is obviously part of the fintech. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, you know, so we're not throwing words around, but you know, yeah, <laughs> I don't know what the, I don't know what the correct definition of fintech, I mean, it, you know, uh, uh, financial firm, the, 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 the financial, the banking space, the financial space, it's similar to the, what we were just talking about with the agencies is being fragmented and disintermediated by a whole bunch of different players right whether it's investors like robin hood or it's savers like acorns or it's you know banking alternatives or whatever you know like so there's just um there's blood in the water you know i think that the big banks uh 
fell asleep at the wheel to a large extent, you know, and there's uh, just a new generation of customers. There's new payment options, you know, like buy now, pay later, yeah. new credit or new credit options, you know, like that there's just a new generation that's coming through that is looking at those old banks and it's like, you know, it doesn't have to be that way, you know, like why I don't I don't know I don't necessarily want to, you know, a bank that has, you know, five hundred branches and, you know, I don't necessarily need a a manager that I can talk to. If I can do it online, then maybe that's better. So I think there's been a few waves now of um, a few waves now of these like new fintech companies that have come out. But it's it's hard to come up with a single definition. Fintech's kind of a catch-all phrase, really, for saying like anyone who's using technology in a disruptive way to finance. you know to to screw around with the world of finance which mostly means like the big banks or the big investment companies yeah. you know and it's such a huge market that there's just a lot of um you know there's a lot of uh uh ways of disrupting it you know and you're you're the chief growth and revenue officer uh, at aspiration bank um yeah how long has aspiration bank been around for about six years um you know it's really um it's really just scaling now though um without uh without going you know do too much into a history lesson it had to go through the process it's actually not technically it's not a bank it's actually a um, a broker dealer which is just a just sort of a different it's a different denomination if you like in order to be accredited with the status of bank you have to you know it's just a slightly different denomination but to all intents and purposes it functions in a similar way you have a debit card you know you can deposit checks uh, etc and withdraw money and and spend money in the in the way that you would with a regular uh, uh bank account um but in order to get that status we had to go through this before I joined, I've only been there for seven months before I joined. So in 2019, I had to go through this, you know, pretty painful process of getting these sort of accreditation, of being accredited with that, uh, with that uh, status. So um, long story short, it's been around for five or six years now, but I think in the last six months, you know, one of the reasons I joined when I joined and, you know, um, the reason I joined is because you know they 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 have you know a decent amount of funding. They're sort of Series C. They've raised a lot of money um, and are really ramping up and scaling. You know, so you know it's probably pretty true to say that um, six months ago and even today, you know, most people haven't heard of it. Um, you know, we're running. You know, we just did a big campaign in Austin. We're doing one in LA right now. Yeah, so I, it's I, yeah I was. I was going to say. Uh, you know, I'm walking around Venice. I was sending you pictures of. Um, yeah. I'm seeing. I'm seeing sort of like decals sprayed on the pavement, and yeah. And so your um, the banks, um, uh, you know, sort of uh, sort of mantra is is clean finance, right? what is clean finance well it's kind of the opposite of uh, you know dirty money basically and what i call dirty money i mean this is a it's not a recognized term it's just something that i it's a it's a handy way of thinking about it um you know uh, most of the big financial institutions certainly the big the big four banks in the us they um, support actively support um, the 
fossil fuel industry, so oil and coal industry, um, you know, I think the big four banks alone last year donated over $220 billion <laughs> to the oil and, uh, oil and uh, coal industry. Um, so that's what I mean by dirty money. Uh, and they're not alone, you know, there's uh, most of the big financial institutions do. So basically what happens when you have a, a bank account is, you know, when you, you know, you, when you go to sleep at night, the, the bank account on your behalf, you know, invests that money and tries to um, make money on the money that you, that you deposit with them. Um, and most people don't have too much visibility of how they invest that money or what they do with it. Um, so, and don't, frankly, don't ask too many questions about it, but, um, so dirty money in my, in my mind, I mean, I'm a, I'm a pretty, you know, committed environmentalist and, and believe that, uh, you know, believe strongly in fact that it, that, um, global warming, you know, it's, it's been talked about for a long time, you know, um, but a lot of, uh, uh, a lot has changed since Al Gore stood up and talked about the inconvenient truth, and and it's not it's not all been good. In fact, it's it's not mostly you know you have the Paris Accord and some some good things happened, but there hasn't been the level of action that has needed to be taken, given the urgency that he was the urgency of the threat that he was trying to draw attention to. And in fact, most scientists agree that this in this decade if we don't take you know urgent action now urgent action meaning like you know we're talking hundreds of billions of dollars of spend um to develop alternative energies and to reduce our dependency on fossil fuel if we don't do that in this decade that we will reach a point of no, no return. return yeah and that there will be a tipping point you know there is a there is a there is a tipping point coming in the next um in the next few years and like that is a that's a terrifying thought to me so like i i i very much am i'm definitely motivated by that and feel like i want to do something about it and this you know this idea that my you know my bank is you know like i'm i'm using recycled paper i'm you know driving driving an eco-friendly car i'm doing this and i'm doing that but then when i go to sleep at night my bank is investing hundreds of billions of dollars in oil and oil and and gas is just you know it's not something and, that most amongst, people think about amongst other things as well i mean uh, you know, there's other a, yeah, 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 and prisons like blood and, yeah. money and yeah uh, i mean so so really this campaign that the bank is doing is is forcing people to confront a very uncomfortable conversation and difficult conversation about, you know, because, you know, uh, we're all try to, we're all woke. We all try to be very, very woke, but you're right. You know, we, you know, we have our Teslas, uh, Teslas and our, um, you know, recycled paper and, you know, uh, re restored this and restored that. And, you know, our, our money is dirty. You know, um, and yeah. people only really don't think about that. Um, yeah, we. In fact, the some of the creative you might see in LA right now um, is, in fact, we're, I think we're on got like the back of the LA Times for the next few weekends, and you know, a bunch of billboards. Which it just says, you know, pick one: either A, I believe in global warming, or B, I bank with a big bank. And we're trying to force people to 
um, confront that inconvenient truth, you know, that that difficult. I mean, it's a it's a it's a confrontational um, idea that you know. Do you really like? I I like to think of myself as a good global citizen that's trying to do the best that I can, but at the same time, not everything you do, you know, um, uh, you know, there are some things that you do that just have a much greater effect than others. And unfortunately, banking, where you put your money, where you keep your money, anyway, is is has a has an oversized effect on the environment and the environmental impact, much greater, for example, than you know, using recycled bags. Right. Not that, you know, the people yeah. should stop doing that. Yeah. They should keep yeah. doing that, you know. Yeah, but but it's kind of like that's a physical thing that they see, whereas yeah. this is, it, it, it's it, it's not it's not in your face. It's not like a pile of, like, plastic. Yeah. That, you know, yeah. Um, and, and some of the other uh, uh, things that you're using is what it's like, uh, clean, rich, filthy money and... Oh, uh, clean, rich is a new filthy rich. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, it's very interesting. I mean, it really is. It, 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 it's, it's creating that tension with people uh, to really think about where their money is. Um, you know, another thing, um, you know, I think that's important when we talk about environmentalism and we talk about global warming is, is who is really affected by that. Obviously, we all live on the same planet, but let's talk a little bit more about um, the people who really get affected by by global warming and and, and, the, and the harm to the environment. <clears throat> yeah, we did. Um, it's an interesting point. We we did a um, last uh, you know month for Black History Month. We we did a a series of um, pieces, sort of celebrating um, uh, environmentalists who also happen to be people of color who are doing, you know, uh, making a positive difference and contributing to the sort of environmentalist cause. And um, the reason that we did that, the reason it's important, I think it's not it, actually this conversation. I don't hear too much about this conversation in the national dialogue, but it should be is the global warming affects disproportionately to a very large degree affects uh, minorities um, much to a much to a much greater extent uh, largely because of you know kind of like where they live to a large extent um, so um, yeah environmental the environment the environmental impact of global warming is not felt equally by all socioeconomic groups unfortunately yeah. um, uh, which is you know, it's something like, as I say, that just doesn't get enough, um, doesn't get enough airtime, in my view. We, we, we just recently brought on uh, a board member, Ben Jealous, who uh, has been a lifelong advocate of this and has been sort of uh, getting a, a ton of press uh, uh, recently around this topic. But um, yeah, it, it, it needs more, it needs more exposure because it's, uh, I think it's, um, it's getting to a crisis point with certain communities and, you know, and not like rising water levels is one yep. example of that, but you know, it's not the yep. only one. Yeah. And, and, and on the same subject, you know, we talk about the carbon offset and green offset, this sort of green washing. Yeah. Um, talk a little bit about that because, you know, that's kind of, you know, a, a lot of people are trying to, you know, feel that they're, you know, cleansing their, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, greenwashing is, 
you know, when you when you're dealing with a topic like environmentalism, environmental impacts, um, sustainability, it, by definition, it's a long term thing, right? So you 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 know, you do what you can in supporting it, but at the end of the day the actions that you take by using recycled bags or or driving an eco-friendly car is going to be felt by your children you're not probably going to feel it yourself so it's a long-term long-term impact um because of that it's easy to to not do it you know it's easy to like oh screw it you know i'll just use a plastic bag today and you know or drive drive a gas guzzling car or bank with a big bank um and so all green what all, all greenwashing really needs to do is to introduce just like an element of doubt just an element of well maybe they're not as bad as they 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 you know maybe they're not actually yeah. that bad so the, the example that i um you know use sometimes to describe this is like there's a there's a publication called nature conservancy and i i happen to um subscribe to it because i've donated to them in the past and they're sponsored by Bank of America, specifically the Bank of America Green Card. I can't remember what it's called, but you know, Bank of America donate hundreds of billions of dollars to the oil and uh, coal industry, and yet they have they're sponsoring this Nature Conservancy magazine with their green card. So you know, you see that, and unless you really do the due diligence and the digging into, you know, and really look at the look at how the money gets spent you think oh maybe they're not so bad after all you know it seems like they're doing something for the environment um and they are doing something for the environment but the thing they're doing for the environment is this big and the thing yeah. they're doing that destroys the environment is this right. big. so it's just it's just massively disproportionate and there's just unfortunately there's just a lot of that going on um so it's easy to easy to introduce confusion um plus you know i would say we live because of what's happened in the last four years, I think we live in, um, and I, I'm not just talking about the Trump presidency, I'm talking about QAnon and, and the, the times that we live in, you know, that the people's relationship with the truth has changed. So, you know, I don't think there's such a thing as objectivity anymore. So um, introducing just a little bit of doubt uh, around this topic or a little bit of confusion around this topic, which is what lobbyists are paid to do, is, is sometimes all it takes. Yeah. No, I mean, very, very true. And, you know, the, the whole the whole um, what is true and what is not true now. I mean, it, it, nobody I mean, it's like, you know, yeah. we, you know, you, you know, I'll give you the example of the election. The election happened. It was it was counted multiple times. And then there's still millions of people who will believe to their grave that it was stolen, you know. Um, you know, so it, it, yeah, it, it's very scary. Um, I wanted to get your opinion as the sort of chief growth and revenue officer of a, of a, of a fintech bank on uh, cryptocurrency and blockchain, because this really is the, um, you know, it, it's, a, it's a very, very hot topic. Uh, I believe that blockchain and crypto is here to stay. Um, wanted to first of all uh, get a sense of you know without you divulging any secrets is you know is Aspiration planning to um, you know uh, you know support cryptocurrency um, and then just get a sense of where you see blockchain and crypto going um, you know yeah 
Um, I'll preface this with like, I'm by no means a cryptocurrency expert. So like I, um, um, and so um, any of your, any of your recommendations, people should not uh, hold, should not you. listen to, absolutely <laughs> do not listen to my recommendations on it. Um, you know, there's a lot of speculation in that market right now. Um, mm -hmm. the one thing I would say though, is what's pretty shocking to me, actually, I, I, um, recently found this out is the amount of energy that it takes for Bitcoin in particular. I think Bitcoin's the worst offender in this respect. Um, but the energy that it takes to mine uh, Bitcoins is phenomenal. The amount of energy that was used in mining Bitcoins last year, I think, was greater than the amount of energy that was used in total in the country of Portugal. So it's like it takes a lot of energy, you know, to uh, mine bitcoins because of the, you know, the server farms. So it is um, it's interesting because, you know, it's attracting people who are interested in alternative investment and who want to do something, you know, outside of the sort of um, traditional infrastructure. But at the same time, uh, it's, you know, it, it has this huge environmental impact. So I do believe that they're you know, as it gets normalized and as it get as it grows and becomes more mainstream, um, you saw, you know, Elon and just announced, you know, it's becoming mainstream, right? It just announced a large, large uh, investment. Um, I think you will see the, or are seeing the emergence of, you know, more um, sort of environmentally friendly forms of crypto, you know, uh, that uh, act as an alternative to, to Bitcoin. And I think, you know, as that market matures, I think you'll just like, you know, clean finance, uh, clean finance currently, you know, only really applies to alternatives to traditional banking. But I think you'll see that also in alternatives to sort of traditional crypto, if you can say that, yeah, yet, you know, yeah. sort of traditional crypto <laughs> being Bitcoin. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, as as a as a CMO, um, you know, multiple companies, I, I wanted to get a sense of where you see the, the, the post -COVID, uh, covid workplace. I mean, you know, you, you know, uh, how do you see the office experience or what are you thinking about the office experience being with the fact that we've had this uh, tremendous shift? from you know it's all about working in offices working as teams be you know face to face travel and just you know office 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 and yeah. we've had a year of you know virtual um living and, and working from all over the world where do you see the uh, what do you see as the post-covid uh, work um experience in an office yeah i mean I, you know, I think that's the million dollar question, isn't it? And then no one, no, no, I don't know. It's a short answer. Um, <clears throat> but I, I, I do have a perspective on it, which is, so you've got, you know, you've, you're different companies placing their bets, right? I think Facebook and Google um, have come out on the side of, you know, giving everybody the opportunity of working virtual if they want to. So they're fully embracing it. Um, and then I think you've got Amazon and, and Apple kind of not, not embracing it quite to quite the same extent and saying that they do want people to return to you know physical offices and so you know you've got different companies lining up and placing their bets um and but w one factor that i think is 
not being adequately accounted for is that, you know, we've been living in COVID times for, you know, for a while now, right? And companies like, I mean, if I think about, you know, my team at Aspiration, it's grown a lot, you know, I've hired a lot of people, the company's hired a, you know, a, a crazy amount of people um, since COVID began. Um, same at Oscar, you know, it's like very aggressive hiring. Um, so, and those people to a large extent are, are all over the place, right? Because you can't, you, you couldn't, um, during COVID, it was very hard to get the talent if you, you know, um, if you put geographical restrictions on it. So you kind of had to, right? You, you go what you go wherever the talent is. And if the talent happens to be living in a hut in the Canadian Rockies, then that's what it is. So I think what's happened is like over the last, you know, 18 months is there's just been a, over the last year, there's just been, um, been a lot of hiring happening and people have joined with kind of handshake agreements that, you know, when this all blows over, you know, there's just going to be some relocation um, and we'll see, you know, we'll see whether those relocations happen. You know, I think there's going to be, I think there's going to be a lot of people out there who got used to working this way, who are going to say, well, no, sorry. I mean, like, I don't, don't think that is going to, I don't think I'm going to relocate for you. You know, I think I'm going to stay where I am in the Rockies. Thanks. Um, and that's going to put companies in a very interesting position because they're going to need to either, you know, terminate those people and, and rehire, um, which is painful and time consuming and expensive or they're going to have to live with this reality that they've created for themselves, which is, you know, a, a displaced workforce. So I yeah. think that that's going to, uh, whether or not, what I'm basically saying is whether you, whether you side with the people who think that it should go back to normal or it shouldn't go back to normal. I think the reality is that it's going to be very hard to go back to normal. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it, the, the, there is the, the new normal is, is very, very different. And I think the companies that will say, you know, you have to come back. The, the talent is going to have alternatives to go to other companies that are going to say, you know, we're a little bit more lax about yeah. it. And it, you know, and, and, it, and it creates a, a very big dilemma for a lot of these organizations because in, in the pre-COVID, you had to have your office in a city like a New York or like a Los Angeles or a London where talent wanted to live. And yeah. that's where you could attract that talent. And now, as you were saying, you know, talent want to live wherever they want to live because they know yeah. that they can work virtually. So it's been an, a tremendous shift. And I mean, did, did you have you found it difficult with sort of like team building? And I mean, because if I'm not if I'm not mistaken, you actually started in COVID. So you've never really yeah. been this you know, CMO of this company. In an office, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I've never, I, I never met my boss, the CEO of Aspiration, Andre. I've never met him face to face, um, and uh, don't know when I will. <laughs> but yeah, so that's 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 weird. Um, you know, there's actually this reverse. I don't know what the right way of um, uh, of uh, of phrasing it is, but you know, like there's the one of my one of my peers, the chief product officer, Matt at uh, Aspiration, we met face to face for a coffee. You know, after we were on we were on FaceTime together every day. You know, in meetings together every day. And uh, after a few months, because he lives in Brooklyn as well, 
so we said, let's just meet up for a coffee and it was it was just bizarre it's just really bizarre to meet somebody physically when you're so used to having a you know a virtual relationship with them so um yeah there's that weird sort of reverse dissonance that happens um so um i i look i don't know i think that there's um ultimately like all like everything in business it will ultimately resolve it will revert to um whatever makes the most sense in economic terms you know right. so if if workforces can be productive um uh in a remote working remotely um uh certainly when we were at oscar i think when this i was working at oscar when this first when covid first hit you know and we went we all went remote productivity went up you know, and, and I know we weren't the only company that that, that happened to because, you know, um, you know, Alphabet was a big investor and, you know, like they were seeing uh, something very similar. So um, it certainly is possible to work remotely and be as productive, if not more productive. So that's a positive and, and saves the company a shed load of money as well, obviously, in terms of expensive rents in, in places like New York and L.A., as you say. So. There's lots of travel, travel and entertainment as well. Travel, just efficiency. I mean, that's yeah. what I mean by efficiency. I mean, if you're spending an hour a day or two hours a day traveling to and from the office, plus all the time at the office, you know, kind of like hanging out in corridors, chit-chatting, having lunch, whatever, walking to and from meetings, walking into meetings, waiting for people to show up for meetings, trying to decide what the meeting's about. Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's just, you know, as you as you know, I'm sure, you know, you're in meetings all the time. There's, 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 um, there's an efficiency to working remotely that is just, you know, no beating about the bush, right? Straight yeah. to the point. Like, what are we here for? Yeah. So, I, I like that personally because it uh, you get a lot done. You get a lot more done in in the average working day. I find the downside, of course, is the more you know intangible aspects of it, which is you know burnout, um, stress, um, you know separation between work and 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 uh, and your personal life. So the those things are harder to quantify and harder to measure and i don't think we have a good answer to that but i think purely from an economic perspective which is what at the end of the day what most companies are going to respond to i think um is they they won't go back to they're not in a rush to go back to back to the old way because they can they can get the same amount of productivity out of their workforce for a lot less money so yeah. i don't think i don't think that uh, other, the ones that can afford to you know yeah um you know, I think Facebook and Google are embracing it because they can afford to, but you know what I mean? So um, we don't have a lot of time left. And I, and I wanted to touch on one more subject before we go, um, because you, you know, obviously you've got a lot of experience from Old Navy working in retail. And I wanted to get a sense of where you see the future of retail in a post-COVID world as well. <clears throat> oh, God, I... It's been it's been a while since I've been in retail now, but um, uh, yeah, an old navy was you know we had a thousand stores uh, across North America, so um, you know huge physical presence. Um, um, I guess my main point, as I would say, is that you know it doesn't. I think COVID is accelerated a lot of trends that were already happening right so there was always this there, there was already a trend towards um 
you know, retail as experience and, uh, you know, retail as sort of showcasing the best of the, the best of the brand. And then, you know, this sort of omnichannel idea that, you know, you give, you give somebody, you know, a glimpse into what's available and you have people like Reformation doing this early on where the stores essentially is a, you know, it's a, some clothes on a rack, but with an iPad where you can sort of look at different variations. And then the expectation is you can either you know, buy it remote, but you can buy it digitally in the store or you can, you know, have it shipped or you can go home and buy it or whatever. So that whole omnichannel, um, uh, you know, experience is something that was happening pre COVID anyway. I think it's just, you know, just similar to the, the, the remote working, you know, like I, I had already moved pre COVID. My team were working, you know, three or four days. I can't remember which from uh, three, three or four days at the office and one or two days at home as a point of policy, um, because I just found it to be more effective to be working that way. So I think it was a trend that was happening anyway. Omnichannel was happening, you know, brand um, retailers experience was happening anyway. You know, I think it's just, it's just massively accelerated that. Um, so, um, you know, not all affect. It hasn't affected all sectors equally. Obviously, it was it was happening in fashion a lot. You know, prior to this, but it probably wasn't happening in all sectors. So, in some sectors, I think it's probably brought people into the um, the into online shopping um, who weren't previously as comfortable with it, uh, who now are completely comfortable with it. And once you um, once you once you once you once you experience online shopping in a given set, you know, because at one point people were like, well, they'll never buy luxury online and then that happened, or never buy cars online, will that right. happen? Or never buy houses online, will that, yeah, that happen? So yeah. it's never um, bank it, online, that happened. <laughs> yeah, it, it, there's no going back right. uh, once, once that happens. So I think it's just accelerated that trend. Great. Well, um, Unless you have any anything else you want to add to this fascinating conversation, Ivan, um, <laughs> I think we're you know we're almost we're almost up for, with time, you know, because they cut us off at exactly at um, you know on the hour. So seven o'clock in New York, I'm uh, keen for it to yeah. be the weekend. Right. So yeah, I'll, I will I will give you back three minutes then, Ivan. Thank you so much. Uh, it's been fascinating. I mean, first of all, your journey has been interesting, and then also. You know, you know, educating us on um, on you know fintech and and clean finance because you know it's something that you know I don't think people really know about and don't know that there are options um, to do something about that. You know, uh, along yeah. with all the other things. So it's it's been really an interesting and insightful conversation. And uh, thank you. Yeah. Cool. All right. Thanks for inviting me. Well, yeah. Well, thank you everyone for joining and uh, we will be back next week. Um, I will announce who that guest is. It's a secret. Uh, and uh, have a great weekend, everyone. Stay safe and look forward to seeing you all soon. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks, man. Thank you for listening to the Giant Step podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe or follow us on Instagram at Giant Step. Music is by Cinego.
Please also visit our website, giantstep.net, to learn more about our award-winning marketing agency.